Pat, we just take a look at your applications. Make sure you don't have any questions on there about prior cannabis use. Make sure whoever's doing your hiring, if you have a hiring person, your HR person, a recruiter, make sure they're not asking impermissible questions about prior cannabis use because that's now going to be prohibited as of January 1 as well. There are four new laws taking effect in 2024 that are the most impactful on small businesses, one of which doesn't take effect until July, but which today's guests suggest you take the prior six months to fully understand in preparation for complying with. Welcome to another NFIB California podcast. Our podcasts provide a deeper look into the state issues of the day affecting Main Street small business owners. I'm Tony Melandro, NFIB California Senior Media Manager. We're proud to have this podcast supported in part by Five Star Bank, serving customers through specialized banking solutions for entrepreneurs, business owners, and community leaders in Northern California. Each podcast invites a special guest to speak on a topic of his or her expertise. Today's guest is Ben Ebbink, a partner in the Sacramento office of Fisher & Phillips LLP, who will discuss labor and employment law and what lies ahead for small businesses in 2024. Mr. Ebbink is also legislative advocate and principal of FP Advocacy, LLC. He brings more than two decades of experience in labor and employment law to the firms he counsels, including 15 years as chief consultant to the California Assembly Committee on Labor and Employment. Mr. Ebbink has played a key role in virtually every major labor and employment issue to come before the legislature during his tenure and earned a reputation for his integrity, ability to work with diverse stakeholders on all sides, and as a skilled problem solver. We're not talking about advocacy right now, says Tim Taylor, NFIB California's legislative director and host of this podcast. These bills have passed and have been signed. We're really dealing with compliance and what business owners need to know about some new laws coming their way. Take it away, Tim. Thank you, Tony. Really appreciate that. Very honored today to be speaking with Ben. Ben is uh, somewhat of an icon, I think, in the uh, state capital, the labor and employment circles. He is also an attorney, and there's no shortage of labor and employment attorneys in Sacramento, but that's one thing I like about Ben is he's he's been on both sides of it in terms of the crafting the legislation and then sort of implementing and talking about and teaching employers how to comply with the legislation. So he's been both on the, you know, the sausage making side, if you will, and also the, you know, throw the sausage into the cassoulet side of it. Really happy to have you, Ben. Thanks. Thanks so much. Happy to be here again. Unfortunately, talking about new laws that, you know, small businesses in California have to comply with come January 1, but I think we're sort of used to that by now here in California. Yeah, that's right. You know, and looking at your bio, the one thing I did know about you is that you have eight children. I think the one question I have being in the uh, greater Sacramento area is, is eight enough? <laughs> I I think we might be done. I think we, we may have reached our capacity. I enjoy it. It's great. The only thing I'll say is I, I think it has trained me well in the art of negotiation. Negotiation that goes on with eight kids about bedtimes and ice cream and all that kind of stuff. So so why don't we uh, why don't we jump right in? I mean, the one thing I would keep in mind for our NFIB small business owners and members is that we're not talking about advocacy right now. These bills have passed, been signed, and as you mentioned, going to effect January 1, 2024. So we're really dealing with compliance and what our business owners need to know about some new laws coming their way. 
Why don't we start with SB 616, the paid sick leave increase from three to five days? Why don't you sort of give us the lowdown on that? Yeah, that's probably, you know, the the largest bill that's going to have the most impact. And, you know, paid sick leave and leave in general really does have an acute impact on smaller businesses, I would say. You know, a, a business with a couple hundred employees to have an employee out, out sick, it's generally easy to absorb that and, uh, you know, be able to manage that that absence. But when you're talking about small employers, having people out on leave is is a hardship. And nobody wants to deny somebody who's sick time to get better. But the reality is small businesses have a difficult time. They've got to, everybody else has to work more or work overtime, or you've got to hire somebody else's attempt to come in. And, you know, smaller businesses just have fewer resources than the larger businesses to, to absorb and, and, and handle those kind of issues. So I definitely think this is going to be one that's felt more acutely by the smaller employers. Again, it, prior law, existing law was three days or 24 hours. And come January 1, that's going to shift to five days or 40 hours. So not too many changes other than that. Every All the rules in terms of accrual and how you can cap usage and cap how many uh, hours employees carry over. All those processes remain the same. It's just everything is now increased up to five days and 40 hours. What is the current state of accrual? Now, accrual, uh, employers have a couple different options. So the general rule is you provide one hour of sick leave for every 30 hours that the employee works. For the most part, that's how many employers handle it, particularly if you have employees that work less than full time, you want them to accrue their proportionate amount. So many employers do do use that accrual method. Others find the administrative burden of tracking that, keeping track of hours and making sure you're giving them one hour for every 30 hours is too burdensome. And so some employers do a front load method which is, you, you know, you give all the employee, the employees uh, their maximum amount of leave. In this case, it'll be five days or 40 hours right up front, the beginning of that the year. And then they have that for the remainder of the year. So there's pros and cons with, with those two different approaches, but those are generally the methodologies that employers use. And, and the employer can choose which of those methodologies works best for them. Yeah, it's up to the employer how they, how they want to handle that. And again, every business is different. I've got you know, clients all across the spectrum who do one of those two different approaches. Right. Ben, can you tell us about some other types of leaves when you start looking at leave beyond just paid sick leave? I, I don't know the exact number, but there seems to be, you know, roughly 20 different kinds of, of leave. What else is there that maybe they should know about, even if it's not new for 2024 per se, about the other types of leave? Yeah, you're right. You might even be a little short. Last time I looked, I think there were, you know, upwards of of close to 30 different potential type of leave. I mean, we have leave from bone marrow, transplant, organ donation, civil air patrol leave, you name it, there's a leave that protects it in California. I think some of the more significant ones to be aware of, obviously family and medical leave. This is uh, what we call in California, the California Family Rights Act. It's our state version of the federal law, the Family Medical Leave Act, the FMLA. So what's notable here is this law used to apply in California to employers with 50 or more employees. Uh, and we recently changed that and brought that all the way down to the very smallest employers in the state. And it provides for up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave to care for your own serious medical condition or medical condition of a family member. So again, it's not paid leave, but again, 
the prospect of having an employee out for 12 weeks and you have an obligation to bring them back does have an acute impact on the smaller employers. It's smaller for you to absorb when somebody's out for an extended period of time. And that's not to say anything about the merits of, you know, somebody who got a family member who they need to take care of. Those are all legitimate, uh, sympathetic issues. But the practical reality is it impacts the smaller employers greater than it impacts other players. And that's why traditionally we had these laws applied to larger employers, but smaller employers were left to sort of work things out on their own in a way that works for them and their employees, given the nature of their business. And now we're eroding all those differences and all these laws are being applied even to the very smallest players in the state of California. Uh, that's a great update. Really appreciate that. If we could pivot now, I'd like to talk about SB 553, which was, as it was going through the process, was very contentious. It was also made the, the national news. Tell us about it. I, I know it has to do with the workplace violence prevention program being created by employers, but there's definitely more to it than that. Do you want to expound on that a little bit? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty onerous bill. So I will say at the outset that this bill does have, a, have an exemption. It generally requires employers in every industry in the state of California, regardless of size, to implement a workplace violence prevention program. It does have an exemption. It says if you have fewer than 10 employees at any given time and you're not open to the public, then you don't have to comply with this law. So some very small employers out there, you never have more than nine employees and you have no front-facing open to the public, then you may be you know, lucky enough to, to escape uh, this law. But generally everybody else, if you certainly if you're customer-facing, if you, if you have a, a storefront and you have more than nine employees at a given time, you're going to be covered by this law. So at its core, it requires you to establish a written workplace violence prevention plan that is pretty similar, probably sounds similar to folks who know that they have to have an IIPP in California, an injury illness prevention program. But this, this plan is going to require a lot more work. This is not something where you can print off a template from Kalosha's website and put your business name at the top of it and you're done. This really requires you to do a customized, tailored assessment of your workplace and the particular hazards that could exist in your workplace. And that's going to differ from business to business. Some of you are open to the public. Some of you have customers coming in. Some of you don't. Some of you are a closed shop and nobody can access the building unless they have a, a key or a code. Those are all different hazards and, and you're going to have to establish a plan with procedures on how you're going to respond to those hazards that is specifically tailored to your business. So that's just one aspect. This bill also has an annual training requirement that says you have to train your employees every year and potentially even more than every year. For example, if you identify a new hazard or certainly if you have an incident you know, workplace violent incident at work, and you have to reassess your plan, you're going to have to retrain employees at that time. And then on top of that, there's some pretty drastic record keeping requirements. You have to keep a violent incident log, which requires you to keep track of everything that's deemed a workplace violence incident. And those are, you know, terms that are defined in the, in the law. And you have to document that. You have to make it available to any employee who asks for it. And you have to do that for a five-year period of time. So that's a pretty, you know, pretty onerous set of requirements. The, the legislation, this one specifically, does not take effect until July. So folks have a little bit of time, a little bit more time to, to implement these requirements. I'm encouraging everyone to start now, though. Like I said, this is not something 
a few days before July 1st, you can just print out something and, and you're good. You really have to spend some time taking a look at your work site, identifying potential hazards and how you're going to respond to those. So this is probably the most work of any of the bills we're talking about in terms of actual HR time, um, having people take a look at this uh, so that you can be in compliance. Yeah, thank you. I think there was, I've talked to some NFIB members about some other provisions of this bill. I think it'd be important to touch upon because I think there was a kind of a misnomer out there about what this bill did with respect to preventing employees from intervening if anybody were uh, shoplifting. But in, in reality, at least my read at the time was that it didn't prevent uh, anybody from intervening. What it prevented was an employer from forcing uh, an employee to intervene. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the, the issue went through some modifications. So it was it was sort of a fluid situation. I mean, part of the, the impetus for this bill is it was pushed by a labor union that represents grocery store employees. And so... They had some tragic incidents, you know, where employees had, you know, confronted shoplifters, other people engaged in criminal activity in the store with tragic results. You know, somebody pulled out a gun and shot them. So they were really pushing. We do not want employees to be have any responsibility be required to intervene in organized retail theft or uh, shoplifting. And so that obviously got a lot of attention. I mean, there's so many news articles about organized retail theft and and we've all seen the the YouTube videos of of people just sort of loading up bags and no consequences and walking out. So that was a big point of controversy in this bill. At one point the the proposal was shifted to say you can't require an employee to, you know, confront somebody engaged in shoplifting or other activity unless they're a dedicated security personnel, you know, loss prevention specialist or security guard or something like that. Even that got lots of controversy. So Ultimately, that specific language was was stripped out of the bill, but that's still an issue and a hazard that employers are going to have to address. And certainly if you're in a retail situation, I think when you're looking at your, your hazards and doing your assessment and establishing your plan, one of the things you're going to have to address is, what am I going to tell my employees about their responsibility, their role, if somebody's engaged in in shoplifting or even more serious activity. What if somebody comes in with a gun and robs the store? Those are all hazards you are going to have to address in your plan, even if the bill no longer specifically prohibits any type of uh, certain behavior on your part as the employer. Yeah, thank you. We And we were certainly happy, our NFIB members were, that that portion was amended out of the bill, as as you highlighted how about we talk about SB 848, reproductive loss leave, while we're on the topic of leave. Can you uh, talk about that bill and, and what the ramifications are for that uh, come January? Yeah, this is just another one of those, you know, added to the list of the 2530 leave laws in California. So last year, we had a bereavement leave statute that says certain employers, you have to provide up to five days of bereavement leaves when an employee has a you know death of a family member or a designated person. And so this is really kind of mirrors that. This is specific for reproductive loss, which the bill has very specific meaning of what these terms mean. But generally, they're talking about things like a failed adoption process, a failed surrogacy treatment, a miscarriage or a stillbirth. So again, an employee who suffers one of these, you know, they have a miscarriage, they have a surrogacy effort that fails, that employee would be able to take up to five days of, of unpaid leave for this reproductive loss. Again, it's unpaid, 
But again, if they have paid time, they, they are able to use that. Uh, in terms of who this applies to, this applies to employers with five or more employees. So if you're really, really small, this is you know not going to apply to you. But if you have five or more, it applies to you. And employees can begin taking this leave once they've worked for you for 30 days. So it's not something like they have to be a long-term employee. After 30 days, this right kicks in. There is a limitation. It's The law says that you as the employer are only required to provide up to 20 days a year. So, you know, an employee can have multiple of these reproductive loss events, but there is at least some upper limit. 20 days is a lot, but at least there's some upper limit here. One notable difference between this and bereavement leave, bereavement leave allowed you to ask for some type of documentation. You could ask for a copy of the obituary, a death certificate, even a program from the funeral home, something like that to document that there was actually a death. This bill has no, no documentation. You're not allowed to ask for any documentation about these these issues. So sort of a double-edged sword, there is some upper limit to, to 20 days total that you would be required to provide this per employee, but you can't ask for any documentation. So, And, and, and by the way, backtracking a little bit, that applies to 661 as well, right? You don't have to get a quote-unquote doctor's note. Yeah, the paid sick leave law, you know, does not allow you as the employer to ask for documentation as well. That was actually a point of the discussion this year. The business community was saying, look, if we're going to increase the obligation three days to five days, at least let us ask for some documentation, even if just for those longer leaves. Like if you're out for more than three days in a row, in that situation, isn't it reasonable we can ask for some type of documentation? Doctor's note, prescription, you're probably being treated for somebody if you're out for that extended period of time. Fortunately, the legislature wasn't able to, wasn't willing to do it. So yeah, you're right. Basically, no opportunity to ask for any documentation. And We've all seen situations where, you know, it's Friday before a three-day weekend or Monday after the Super Bowl, and and you see the numbers of uh, employees calling in sick. So we know there's abuse going on, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of tools you as the employer have to do anything about that. Yeah, like a, like a kid signing for their mother going to school. Right. right. Certainly, though, not everybody that's sick goes to the doctor, and that that's also true. Yeah, and I think that was originally part of the... Uh, the reason why there wasn't a documentation, I think that makes sense. You know, if you if you wake up and you're not feeling good, you want to stay home for one day, you got the sniffles, probably not going to see a doctor in that situation. But, you know, if, especially in this post-COVID age, I think if you're out for an extended period of time, consecutive days in a row, maybe it's reasonable to say, shouldn't there be some documentation for those longer leaves? We're talking four or five days in a row. But yeah, that's that's part of the debate the legislature had. And Again, ultimately, they weren't willing to impose any kind of obligation. Hi, I'm James Beckwith, President and CEO of Five Star Bank. We are excited to help bring you this series of podcasts focused on small business concerns in conjunction with the NFIB. When Five Star Bank was founded in 1999, it was business and community leaders, local entrepreneurs, who wanted to create the sort of personalized banking services they desired themselves. Services inspired by partnership and defined by shared vision and goals, a true understanding of the needs of small business owners. I know a meaningful relationship with a banker can be hard to find. At Five Star Bank, we are responsive, understand your business, and are committed to your success. We want to be a part of your growth and a valued partner supporting your vision and your dreams. You'll find direct access to a banker, complete online and mobile business banking you need to succeed. As an SBA preferred lender, let us help you with your startup business or existing business. 
If you're looking to make a change, please give us the opportunity to demonstrate what our personalized banking services could mean for you. I promise you individual attention from our colleagues who understand your business and are as committed to your success as you are. You can find us online at fivestarbank.com. Well, why don't we move on to a very hot topic, and that is cannabis and how that, how cannabis, there's legislation 2188 that expands FIHA as anti, kind of in that anti-discrimination bucket. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, there's actually two bills here. One of them was enacted last year, but it had a delay of implementation, so it doesn't go into effect until this January. So that's AB 2188. Essentially, that bill does two things. First of all, it says... You as an employer, you're not able to, you're not allowed to discriminate or take any adverse action against employees if they're due to their cannabis use away from work during non-work hours, right? Because cannabis is now lawful in California, even for recreational purposes. So you can't take any adverse action against employees if it's something they're doing away from your work site on their own time. That's the first provision of AB 2188. The second provision says you can't take adverse action against them for testing if they show non-psychoactive THC metabolites. So cannabis has basically two different types of, of metabolites. They have psychoactive THC metabolites, which really show the presence of THC and impairment. And they have non-psychoactive metabolites. And these are the metabolites that might show up in your system for six months at a time. You know, somebody does a, a hair test or a urine test, they may show these non-psychoactive metabolites, you know, weeks, if not months, after the fact. So the law as of January 1 will say you can't take action based on a test for those non-psychoactive metabolites. You can still measure for THC and take action there, but these non-psychoactive metabolites that don't really show any type of current uh, impairment, you can't you can't take any action there. So sounds good in theory. I think the challenge for employers will be we don't really have a good test for impairment. THC testing is not widely available. And it's super expensive, you know, if it exists. So employers are going to be left sort of making judgment calls and trying to determine through circumstantial evidence if somebody's impaired versus they may have partook the night before and they're just sort of, you know, feeling the after effects the next day. That's a difficult situation to be, you know, we had an article in, in the paper here in Sacramento a couple of weeks ago about CHP is pulling people over, citing them for driving under the influence of cannabis. District attorneys are actually prosecuting a very small amount of those because they can't prove impairment. We just don't have a tool like we do for blood alcohol content. So somehow, even though CHP and the DAs can't figure out how to prove this, you as employers are magically going to uh, somehow uh, be able to determine whether your employees are impaired or not. So the law says you don't have to allow them to be impaired. Again, the question is, how do you prove that they're impaired or not? You don't have to allow them to possess cannabis at work. You don't have to allow them to use cannabis at work. So that one's going to be pretty significant when that kicks in. There was sort of a companion measure to that, SB 700, which says you can't even ask applicants about prior cannabis use. So there, I would just take a look at your applications. Make sure you don't have any questions on there about prior cannabis use. Make sure whoever's doing your hiring, if you have a hiring person, your HR person, a recruiter, make sure they're not asking impermissible questions about prior cannabis use because that's now going to be prohibited as of January 1 as well. 
It would seem to me that uh, backing up to 2188, that piece that maybe more needs to be done in this, that it's maybe an imperfect sort of bill at this point or, or statute. I, I think that's right. And I, I really think that's why they delayed implementation. I, I think their hope was, well, maybe the science will get there if we if we kick it out a year. And, and unfortunately, I just don't think we're there yet. If anyone out there can invent a simple, uh, cost-effective cannabis impairment test, uh, you'll be a billionaire. So uh, more power to you if you can do it. But I just don't think we're there yet. And so in the meantime, you're going to be left making these judgment calls of how you measure just from appearance and other factors. I mean, maybe maybe they come in and they smell, they reek of cannabis and they have bloody eyes and they're sort of slurry. Maybe you can put enough of those factors together to determine, I think this person's impaired, but you know that's going to be a fact by uh, case by case factual determination. My, my my sense of that is that if DA, DAs are not prosecuting people who are uh, at least by the uh, assessment of the CHP are impaired, when there's such a public safety issue with that, that it's going to be very hard for employers to pull that off. It's going to be really tough. I should point out in all of this, there are exceptions for you know if you're covered by a federal law or DOT regulations that require you to test or have drug free policies or you're a federal contractor, there are some exceptions there. There's also an exemption for employees in the building and construction trades. So and it, it doesn't really define what that means. And it doesn't really specify if it's only the employees that are actually doing the construction work, but it is an acknowledgement of, okay, maybe we want some protections of you know certain employees uh, operating heavy machinery. So it's not blanket across the board. There are some exceptions, but for the most part, if you're not covered by a federal law that requires you to do this or a federal contractor, or you're not in the building and construction trades, these laws are going to apply to you. Well, thank you, Ben. Those are four great issues as we're kind of winding this up here. Is there anything else out there that would be of interest to NFIB small business owners? I, I think in terms of compliance and getting ready for the new year, if you are looking for guidance and compliance. The Labor Commissioner's Office just a few days ago did update their FAQs on paid sick leave. So you can just Google that. DLSE is the abbreviation for the Labor Commissioner's Office. If you just Google DLSE paid sick leave FAQs, those will come out. Those have been updated to reflect the new law. So worth a read, you know, have have your HR folks take a look at those. They, you know, have some up, updated related information to that. So there are some resources out there. Obviously, you know, talk to counsel as you make specific decisions. I would say specifically on uh, the cannabis issue. I mean, that's an issue that's fraught with peril and you're making judgment calls about whether to discipline somebody because you think they're impaired. You might want to talk to an attorney in those situations because those are going to be close judgment calls for the time being. Uh, maybe Fisher Phillips, right? Would be a good place to start. We're always happy to help. So if if somebody wanted to reach out to you, they had some compliance issue and just wanted to, to talk about it. Uh, how would they get in contact with you, Ben? Yeah, so easy. Reach out to me. Uh, my information's on the Fisher Phillips website. My email address is there, bebbing at fisherphillips.com. My phone number, 916-210-0400. So a couple of different ways you can get in contact with me. I'm also on LinkedIn. It's a great way. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and, and direct message me there as well. Thank you for joining us, Ben. Really appreciate it. Your wealth of knowledge and your reputation is well-earned. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me again. One of these years, we'll be talking about good news, but probably not for the foreseeable future. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. And thank you, Ben Ebink, for your analysis and thoughts. 
Again, we'd like to thank Five Star Bank for its generous support of this and future podcasts. You can learn more about Five Star at fivestarbank.com. You can find all NFIB California podcasts at nfib.com slash ca slash podcasts. That's nfib.com slash ca slash podcasts. You can also find our podcast on your favorite podcast app by searching NFIB California. I would also like to thank Multipoint Content Strategies for its production of this podcast. You can learn more about them at multipointstrategies.com. Why Podcasts for Small Business? It has been NFIB's educational mission for 80 years to remind policymakers that small businesses are not smaller versions of big businesses and that a one-size-fits-all rule, regulation, or tax can do Main Street enterprises more harm than good. We hope these podcasts aid in better understanding. Finally, thank you to our listeners. If you liked what you heard, please share this episode, subscribe, and give us a positive rating. We would appreciate it.